Amen. We welcome Laurel. You can have a seat. Good morning, everyone. I hope you are well. It is good to see you. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It is good to be with God's people. It is good to worship. It is good to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It is good to be here in Edinburgh. I want to thank Pastor Brent for allowing me to be here with you all this morning. And um, to be able to try to, in 30 minutes, uh, address an issue that isn't just one that we deal with externally, but I think one that we're continuing to try to bravely address in the body of Christ, and that is the reality of racism. Now, let's just admit from the very beginning that when I say the word race or racism, there are people that start to get nauseous and want to run for the doors. If that's you, the doors have been locked and you're not leaving. But more than that, I want you to know that I am not an expert. If there are experts in pain, painful situations, I think we can all say that we have expertise, we have lived experience, but I do, I am a student of history. Uh, my mother taught for 43 years in the schools. I am a student of history. I do travel quite a bit. I read a lot on the history of America, the fabric of America, civil rights movement, etc. And as a youth and young adult pastor for 25 years, I continue to watch what is happening in our culture because pastorally, my job is to be responsive. But I can also tell you in the midst of the things that I have seen and studied, I have done my work. You can imagine that as the pastor of students at Bethel University for the last 11 years, for those of you who don't know Bethel University, have never been inside Bethel University, Bethel is historically a Swedish Baptist institution. So that means most people there historically do not look like me. Now, there could be a Swede in my family somewhere. You never know. But as far as I know, last time I looked, I'm, I'm not knowingly Swedish. But for 11 years, I've been serving young people. And I can guarantee you that unless I had done my work around issues of race and racism, there is no way that I could pastor 2,500 young people, the majority of who look nothing like me. It is not simply charisma. I am the first person, perhaps the first African-American in the lives of most of those students that's ever been in their life. I'm the first leader of color that most of them have ever had. For some of them, I'm the first woman who's ever been in this role. I know at Bethel, I'm the first woman in the history of this institution and the first woman of color to ever be in this history in almost 150 years. And so what that says to me is that Bethel, much like Converge Worldwide, of which you are a part and I am a part, are trying desperately to be more like the kingdom of God as revealed in Revelation 7-9, right? We want to be more like Christ. We don't want to run away from the issues that we've been dealing with since the fall. And I believe that racism, like many other things of the flesh, are things that we have been dealing with since the fall. I also believe that there have been things that we as human beings have done in our sin to perpetuate and make some of these things worse. The beauty of being a part of the body of Christ is, however, is that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to be courageous enough to address the things that the rest of the world wants to run away from. We have a sacred responsibility to one another, brothers and sisters, not only to have these conversations, but to grow up enough in Christ to do something about the conversations we're having. There is nothing comfortable about talking about race. 
Nothing comfortable about talking about the Me Too movement. Nothing comfortable about talking about discrimination of any kind. But there is a comfort that comes from knowing the king of all creation who saved our souls. And if he was able to save me, which is a miracle, and save you, which I know is a miracle, then I believe that addressing issues of race and racism in our churches can be things that we don't just cross our arms about or roll our eyes at, which we tend to do as Christians. Depending on your generation, you may have very different feelings about this. Young people, those of you who are in high school, maybe millennials, you may be saying, why are we even having this conversation? It's not that big of a deal. Yes, it is a big deal. It is a big deal when you have racial profiling. It is a big deal when we continue to deal with the stain of fabric. It is a big deal when the Ku Klux Klan still exists. It is a big deal when skinheads are allowed to exist. It is a big deal when some of our families are blatantly racist, and you know it is, because every time you get together at Thanksgiving, there's some kind of crude joke that makes everyone uncomfortable. It's an issue. It's an issue because we're uncomfortable with those things. So for some of you who are younger, you may say, well, I have black friends or I have a sibling that was adopted from another country. What that tells me is that you are culturally astute, but you are historically ignorant. You may have a sense of what it is today, but if you don't have a sense of what racism has meant through the generations, you will not understand why it means something to people, While there, why there's this clenching, why there's this anger, why there's this visceral reaction, why when the governor of Virginia has a picture in blackface, why it makes people angry. If I were to say this to some of you, does anyone know who Al Jolson is? How many of you know who Al Jolson is? Most of you are older. How many of you have no idea who Al Jolson is? Look him up. Al Jolson was somebody who um, was a white man who put on blackface and sang a song called Mammy. So when we see today's issues of blackface, what that says is there is still an inferiority complex that people have in the way that they see other people. We also have things that we say within the body of Christ. Things like love sees no color. Guess what? The creative genius of the world created me so that you could see this color and appreciate it. There's nothing wrong with this. We like the beauty of creation in our gardens. Anyone who's a gardener in here loves anyone who loves to garden. So you love the beauty of the creation and all of the different variations. Why is it that we as people in the body of Christ struggle with the variations of what God has created? Because our own flesh and our own brokenness, somehow the enemy has found his way into our lives and into our hearts to be able to create this sense of superiority, which has in many ways been woven into the fabric of our countries. When the Declaration of Independence was written, it was not written with me in mind. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal with certain unalienable rights, including what? Life? Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Do you know when that was written, I would have been considered three-fifths of a human being? In those same chronicles, in those same papers, I was not considered a human being. I would be likened to chattel, to a cow that could be sold. It is why if I would have gotten married as a slave woman, my husband could be sold from me and my children could be sold from me. Because my identity was not seen as one of a human being, but one of a commodity. That is how the United States of America in which we live was built. 
And so when we wonder why are we still talking about these things, it's because unfortunately we've got to look at the fabric of our country and we've got to pull out some wicked threads and say, we no longer want to have this as a part of the thread of our country. We may not be able to erase everything and we may not be able to erase all of those laws, but we can be wise about what we have learned and what things are on the inside of us that allow us to see each other the way that we do. More than anything, brothers and sisters, if you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, as I have, if you take your faith seriously, you have a responsibility to see me as a daughter of the Most High God. You have a responsibility to see and love and honor who God has created as I do you. And any other kind of jaundiced perspective about my personhood based on what you see and what you do not know, you have got to lay at the cross. Because anything else that subjects me and objectifies me based on human wisdom rather than the wisdom of God is a fairy tale. I am a daughter of the king as you are. And too many of us are not treating ourselves that way. And that is why the church must talk about it. Not to make ourselves feel guilty or fearful or anxious, though all of those things may be a reality. But we must talk about those things that we can find a way forward. I believe that we can find a way forward. Now let me say this finally. I have people that don't like my suggestion of finding a way forward. I have people that think I am not angry enough about the issue. I have people that want me to, to consider myself African-American first and Christian secondly. I consider myself a born-again believer and a Christian first. But that does not mean that I will not stand up and honor the legacy of my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents and those who suffered so this country could be what it is and so I could be who I am. 200, 300 years ago, there would have been no doctor in my family. But because of what they sacrificed, doctors, including myself, stand in this place. Without the work of those who addressed racism, we would not be a multi-ethnic group sitting here. Do any of you realize that? Do any of you realize that because of the sacrifice of the Fannie Lou Hamers and the Martin Luther King Juniors and the others who dared call out our country, that we can actually sit in the same room together? Do you know that 40 years ago, I would have never even had the right to stand in front of you? Do you know that according to certain denominations, I still shouldn't have the right to stand in front of you? We are the body of Christ. You and me. Purchased by the same blood. That makes us family. That makes us those who are pushing toward heaven. That means that Revelation 7-9 is a goal for us that says that every tribe and nation and tongue shall worship at the throne of the Lamb. That means we've got to find a way forward. That means we have to trust each other, friends. And I'm hoping that some of you will join us after this to ask us hard questions. Because here's what I know keeps us from finding a way forward. That Satan loves to sow discord and fear. He loves to use the media. He loves to use examples to try to put pit us against one another. He loves to sow the suspicion that you really aren't who you say you are. And believe me, while racism that we're talking about is power plus privilege, people of color also have our own prejudices. Let's just be honest about that. We got our own stuff as well. But today, right now, I want to use 
perhaps a different portion of scripture than what you would imagine to try to talk about a way forward, to try to look at how Jesus dealt with a woman at a well in John chapter 4, to find a way forward as Jews and Samaritans, as one example of people that were ostracized one another around race and around ethnicity, found a way forward in one story. And perhaps that one story can multiply into many stories that will help us find a way forward. Caucasian brothers and sisters, wave at me. Wave. Don't act like you're not out there because I'm looking right at you. Don't, don't try to disappear on me. Wave at me again. Okay, hi, we're family. Okay? I love you. We're not, I'm not mad at you. Okay? Every African-American person who talks with some exousia is not mad at you. <laughs> if we talk with passion, we're not angry. Just free your mind and the rest will follow. Okay? We're not all angry, and so, but some are. And if people are angry, let them be angry because you don't know what their story is. I'm sure that if I dug into the recesses of your life, there'd be some things for which you could feel pretty angry about too. People are on a journey. So let people be where they are on a journey. And when you encounter people who are in pain on their journeys, be mature enough in Christ to listen to why they are hurting. Your job is not to fix anyone. Your job is to listen, to love, and to serve. Okay? That's what we're talking about today, to listen, to love, and to serve. Brothers and sisters who are people of different ethnic backgrounds, wave at me. Okay, we have work to do too. So let us not act like we don't have some work to do. What we don't want to do is to be the perpetual teachers. We don't want to be your Encyclopedia Britannica. We don't want to be your Essence Magazine. We want you to go and to learn on your own. We want you to go travel to the continent. We want you to see some things. We want you to study some things. We don't want to be your walking encyclopedia for black people. I can walk alongside you, but I have learned for 52 years what your history is. Learn mine. Celebrate Black History Month. Eat some greens, because I've eaten lutefisk. <laughs> Eat a chitlin, even if you want to spit it out. Learn to clap on the one and three rather than the two and four. <laughs> Praise him. Please, Jesus. <laughs> Listen to gospel. Ring the doorbell of a neighbor that looks different than you. Ask a question and be willing to hear the answer. Ask the question. And be willing to hear the answer. And do not run away when it makes you uncomfortable in terms of what is said. If I were to ask each one of you, are there some sensitive things in your life that if someone asked you a question, would you feel a little bit painful about talking about it? How many of you would say yes? Okay. Then realize for some people that yes is racism. That yes, that painful place, is history. Four years ago, we had the honor at Bethel University to bring... Reverend Dr. Bernice King, the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr. to Bethel University. To say that we were overwhelmed by her presence was an understatement. She looks like him. Her mouth is like him. She preaches like him. She preached a message that day called, Blessed are the peacemakers. And it floored us. It drew us to our knees. Why? Because this woman 
the youngest daughter of Martin Luther King Jr. who had seen her father, her grandmother, her uncle, and a cousin all assassinated, who as a teenager was angry at any white person, who hated the very vision of the country in which she was raised, found a way forward, and today is a minister of the gospel and the leader of the, her father's legacy who continues to find a way forward. That Bernice King is trying to live out the vision that her father had. What a weight at 52 years old that Bernice King is trying to live out that for which her father died. Do you know the work that she had to do to be able to preach a message like, blessed are the peacemakers? To be able to walk the earth to remember that it was hate that took her father and now she is a messenger of the love of God? It is possible. It is not only possible, it is doable, but it's going to take all of us. You and me and all of us who call ourselves believers. So friends, brothers and sisters, don't run away. Don't shrink back. Don't say it wasn't my issue. It wasn't my people. It wasn't my generation. Don't say it. Don't exonerate yourself from the responsibility to care. Not if you belong to Jesus Christ. You have too many brothers and sisters around the world. Too many people who look nothing like you but have the same heart as you do for Jesus who need you desperately to continue to push a way forward. Amen? So let's look at John chapter 4 briefly. Many of you know this story, and so tech people, we're going to go through it very quickly. You know this story. As a matter of fact, I may do a synopsis for you. It is the story of the woman at the well. When Jesus has just finished preaching, he said the word of God says he has to go through Samaria. Now, how many of you know he didn't have to go through Samaria? Jesus chose to go through Samaria. He had an appointment with a woman who in all ways was completely different from him. He being a Jew, a rabbi, and holy, had an interaction with a woman who was a Samaritan. Not only a Samaritan, a sinful woman. Samaritans and Jews were completely different from one another. Samaritans were Jews in many aspects, both coming from the tribes of Jacob. But when they had a split between the northern and southern kingdoms, the Samaritans were left behind and they started to marry, intermarry with the Mesopotamians and others. And not only did they start to intermarry, they started to worship other gods instead of the one true living God. So for the Jews, they were now tainted. They were unholy. They had made a mockery of the one true and living God. And it began a rift that lasted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In and through that rift, we saw heartbreak after heartbreak. We saw the continued intermarrying, the continued worship of other gods, the continued breakdown of relationship. We even see in places in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Nehemiah, Ezra, we see the stories of how the Jews and the Samaritans could never find their way back to one another. We see the defilement of temples at the hands of Samaritans. And so when we think about the story here, not only perhaps of this story, but of the Good Samaritan, you can start to imagine why this interaction was so extraordinary. Because for hundreds of years, there was a pact that never would Jews and Samaritans come together. Perhaps think about this as the way that we heard the stories between Muslims and Serbs. 
in Bosnia, the way that we've all come to hear about Catholics and Protestants. There was this kind of disdain where people from the same tribe were killing one another because of that level of hate. Now, let me be very clear that Jews did not own Samaritans like Europeans owned my people. Jews and Samaritans in some ways were very equal. African-Americans and Europeans were never equal. And in many ways, in the laws of this country, we're still not equal. But in the laws of God, we are more than equal, more than conquerors, brothers and sisters, bought by the same blood of an Afro-Asiatic Jew, Jesus the Christ himself. And so when we hear this story and we think about this story of what Jesus did, this interaction with this woman, we find that not only did he address her objections about him interacting with her on racial lines, Jesus started to love and interact with her about her other indecisions. She was not only uncomfortable with him as a Jew, she was uncomfortable with him as a man. She was uncomfortable because of her sin. There was lots of discomfort, but God is able to deal with the things that we try to hide. How many of you could say amen to that? That like a heat-seeking missile, Jesus has a way with love that is unspeakable to get at us, to find the things that break us and make us sinful and move those things out of the way, not to punish us. But this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus comes to shame our shame. Jesus comes to destroy and put under our feet the things that seek to divide us from himself and from one another. Jesus is undescribable, inimaginable. His power is unfathomable, but the same power that raised him from the dead is in us. You are more powerful than you imagine, more holy than you may want to receive deeper than you may want to understand. And God wants to use you, all of you, the broken parts of you, the messed up parts of you, your family heritage, your lineage. He wants to use all of you to be a reconciler for his holy kingdom. Why? Because we are able to do, brothers and sisters, what the world outside of here cannot do. If we really took the word of God seriously, if we really stepped in power, we would link arms and go out there and people would say, why, how? When? And we could say, come, come into the house of the Lord. Come hear how God took a wretch like me and turned my life around and transformed me for good. Come meet the man who told me everything I ever did, as the Samaritan woman said of Jesus. And not only was her life changed that day, how many of you know that all of the people she went back to, they were all changed? That's the beauty when we address the hard things. It's not just me that gets changed. You get changed. Your family gets changed. The neighborhood gets changed. And the world gets changed because we are cleansed and freed and the shackles fall off. Is that good news to anybody? That's good news to me. And maybe you all didn't have your coffee this morning. Maybe you didn't think I was going to unleash on you like this, but guess what? I sure am. Because there's joy. There is joy in freedom. And there's joy even in this kind of conversation. We can have joy in saying, yes, we see the wretched, awful, dark stains of our past but we can find a new way forward, acknowledging our past, being purveyors of the Spirit in the future so that others can go forward with a different kind of life. Our past does not need to be the thing that defines us. 
It can be the open book from which we learn, young people. Our past can be the thing that you look at and say, how is it possible? How is it possible that people could be treated that way? Get on a bus, take your families to places where you have to go face to face with the horrors of our past so that we do not have to repeat it. Take them to South Carolina. Take them to Montgomery, Alabama, where there's a new lynching museum, where there are 4,000 names of people who were lynched between the early 1800s and the mid-1900s. 4,000 names. Take your children there and make them look at the names of people's women and children and spouses that hung from trees like the strange fruit that was sung about in the 1940s. Take them and make them look at it. Go to a plantation. Stand there in the very dirt that slaves trod upon. Stand there and deal with the stench of it all so that you will not allow it to go forward. Deal with the disgust of the human flesh and celebrate the fact that that flesh does not rule us, but the spirit is what gives us life. Be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to a world that is in desperate need. Be his joy and be his love and be his heart to a world that is in need. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the way forward. Do you believe that you can be a part of the way forward? Do you believe that you can be the hands and feet? I hope that you do because I believe that God is calling us to it. The tech people, I want to fast forward past John 4 because I gave a synopsis of John 4. And what I want to do is I want to go straight to the quote from um, John Perkins. How many of you know who Dr. John Perkins is? Any of you? If you ever want to do something extraordinary, go to the Perkins Institute. John Perkins is 88 years old. 88 years old from a place called Mendelssohn, Mississippi. Any Southerners we have? Any, do you have any Southerners in here? No, y'all are just Minnesota to the core. Okay. Well, get on down to the South. They'll treat you good. Right? Dr. John Perkins, the young man from Mendelssohn, Mississippi. He had an older brother that he loved. That older brother came back as a decorated veteran from World War I had an altercation with a police officer in Mendelssohn, Mississippi, and was shot point-blank range on the very day that he came back from serving this great country. John Perkins wanted revenge, and his parents knew that if they let him have revenge, that he too would die, so they sent him to California where he heard the good news of Jesus Christ. He went back then, after some years, to Mendelssohn, Mississippi, where he started a way forward in reconciliation by working with sharecroppers. Not just black sharecroppers, white sharecroppers and black sharecroppers working together. I've had the chance to go and sit and work with John Perkins, meet his beautiful wife, see the community of people that live there. His son Spencer, who passed away, wrote a book with a young man on the way forward of reconciliation. John Perkins is one who worked with Billy Graham and with Bill Bright to create an organization called Mission America trying to find a way forward for all of us to live as God's people, not forsaking the past or acting like it didn't happen, but finding a way forward. John Perkins even loved a Klansman to repentance. Go and find the story. It is extraordinary. And he, this Klansman, and John Perkins remained friends and have remained friends 
How do you do that? Anyone else want to tell me how you love a Klansman to redemption? Anyone have a clue? I don't know that I would have the strength to do it outside of Jesus. But when the love narrative, when the meta-narrative of love is what is your greatest call, you will do whatever it is to make sure that someone who is lost is found. And John Perkins decided to let the meta-narrative of love be greater than his hate for someone who hated him. That is the power of God. And this is one of the things that John Perkins says. You have to be a bit of a dreamer to imagine a world where love trumps hate. But I don't think being a dreamer is all that bad. Joel prophesied that God would pour out his spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. I'm old, I'm an old man, and this is one of my dreams, that my descendants will one day live in a land where people are quick to confess their wrongdoing and forgive the wrongdoing of others and are eager to build something beautiful together. This is not a man who is just theorizing. This is a man who has lived in the deep south, in the trenches for all of his life, who had to go through forgiveness as Bernice King had to go through forgiveness, as I had to go through forgiveness, as some of you had to go through forgiveness because we knew that we could not be lovers of God and hate our brothers and sisters at the same time. Because of the meta narrative of love, people like Martin Luther King Jr. could deal with being stabbed and arrested and beaten because he saw that there was a way forward, a way that only God could forge. But he did it and he sacrificed it. And I guarantee you, there'll be more sacrifices. But for the cause of the gospel, for the cause of one another, we will go and we must go. God is calling us to these deeper places where God can use us as an example of going forward and doing great things. Go to that next slide. John Perkins also said this, there is no reconciliation until you recognize the dignity of the other. Until you see their view, you have to enter into the pain of the people. You've got to feel their need. One of the ways forward, brothers and sisters, is for us to learn to listen and to feel and experience the need of someone else. Not wish it away, not quickly say, I'm sorry that happened to you, but sit in it like Job's friends sat in his pain. Learn to sit with people even when you don't understand, even when your flesh is crawling, even when you want to run away, even when you want to say, this is not the only issue in Christianity. No, it's not, but it is an issue that matters to your brothers and sisters. So deal with it. Deal with what hurts your brothers and sisters. Because when I, you deal with my pain around race, I'm dealing with your pain around gender, and I'm dealing with your pain around divorce, and I'm dealing with your addiction. When we can deal with one another's pain with dignity and respect and respect the people who are telling the story, it cracks open our hearts and allows a way forward. It allows a way forward. Next slide. I want you all to think about some things here that I put down. What can we learn from Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman? Jesus dealt with the Samaritan woman's ethnicity, right? She said, how is it that you, being a Jew, are asking for water from me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus did not let the ethnicity stop him from interacting with her. He dealt with her objections, not only with them being a Jew, but he said, if you give me water, 
If you knew who was asking you for this water, you would give him water. And she said, sir, how is it that you, you have nothing to even draw with? She had objections. She did not initially see him as Messiah. She first saw him as a Jew. Then he was a prophet. Then he was Messiah. Then he became her deliverer. Jesus stayed with her through her ethnicity, through her objections, through her emotions. At one point in John 4, he said, tell your husband to come here. She said, I have no husband. He said, you are right. You have had five husbands, and the man that you live with is not your husband. Boom! Don't you just love it when Jesus gets all in your face, all in your business? Jesus just sticks his foot all up in your world, right? Tears the covers off, but not to shame us. To say, woman, this is not your only identity. Your only purpose is not to draw water. Your only purpose is not to be a Samaritan separated from me, a Jew. Your only job is not to be a daughter of Jacob. Your daughter is to be the daughter of the Most High God. And if you trust me, I will help you find a way forward. He dealt with her history. They were both of Jacob's seed, but they had been divided. He dealt with her reality and he dealt with her cultural status. How, my friends? He met her where she was. Dear ones, go to where people are. Go to the places that make you most uncomfortable. Go to the north side. Gulp. Go shop at a store, at an ethnic store, where you don't even know how to read what the food is that you're getting ready to study. Go somewhere where you are the minority. Every year, I take students on a trip called Sankofa. Every year we do. And we take white kids and kids of color, and we travel together and go down to the United States in the South. And one of the places we take them is to Tuskegee Institute. Tuskegee Institute, for those of you who do not know, is one of 125 historically black colleges in the United States of America. How many of you did not know that historically black colleges existed? 85% of all African-American doctors, lawyers, and others come out of historically black colleges and universities, most of which are in the South travel to one. We take our kids. It is something else when Bethel students step off the bus at Tuskegee Institute and all these kids got out of class and all of a sudden there is a sea of African-American kids. Boy, you should see those Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Nebraska kids. Woo! It is a sight to see as we all sit back like, okay, the bell's getting ready to ring and the flood comes and all of a sudden they don't know what to do. It is part hilarious and part tragic. And the kids at Bethel say, now you know how we feel. But we learn together to look at our past so that we can find a way forward to the present. And that's what Jesus did. He met her where he was at. Through patience, through listening, through truth, and through being intentional, Jesus not only met her, he transformed her identity from a Samaritan to a sister, from one who was lost to one who was found to one who had years of absence with him, to one who became one with him, and he became her Messiah and her Lord. We too can look at this and say, through meeting one another where we're at, through patience, through listening, through truth, through intentionality, we can find a way forward. 
Now, how many know we're going to be dealing with this until Jesus comes back? How many of you feel like this is hard work and I don't always want to do it? Guess what? Amen. Y'all wave at me who don't want to do it. Hello. Welcome to the pain of the flesh. I don't want to deal with it either. Either. There's a lot of things that we don't want to deal with, but we can and we must for the sake of the kingdom. We can do this. Do I have a final slide? So here's what I want to suggest to us, dear brothers and sisters. I want to suggest that through our discomfort, how many of you would say this is uncomfortable? How many of you have tried to address issues of race and been hurt? How many of you just don't, have never tried it, don't know anyone? How many of you have friends of other ethnicities? How many of you have dared ask those friends to journey with you on this? Few of us. Few of us. Here's what I want to encourage you in. We need to learn as the body of Christ to do the hard work that makes our skin crawl. I am one who is willing to do the hard work because I've seen the fruit of the work and because I hate the idea of being so cowardly about my own pain and so self-protective that I never get to see the miracles of God happen as if I were to trust him on this issue. Brothers and sisters, we have work to do, and this is just scratching the surface, but please find a way forward. How, you may say, Ask one of those friends of another ethnicity to dinner. Pick up a book on history. Remove from yourself the fear of being the one who's going to be the victim or the victor in this. Recognize that history is a part of our lives, but it doesn't have to dictate our future. Friend somebody that is completely different than you. It doesn't have to be an African-American. It can be somebody else of another ethnicity. Caucasian brothers and sisters, wave at me. How many of you know your ethnic backgrounds? How many of you can say you know your generational family culture? How many of you have no idea what your background is? Find it. Find it. Because when I talk about being an African-American woman, there's food and language and sounds and songs, the Harlem Renaissance and all of the beautiful things and the ugly things together. But when you are reduced to whiteness, it's a construct that brings fear. But when you tell me you're Irish-American or Polish or Slovakian or Italian or German, it gives me a place by which to begin. I know there was someone through Ellis Island. I know there was a sacrifice. I know there was food. I know there was a song that was once sung in your family's homes. Go back and find that and celebrate who you are because when you give us something as well to celebrate, we know that there are journeys of joy and sorrow. None of us have gotten here because someone didn't sacrifice. And so if we're going to find a way forward, body of Christ, we must begin by humanizing one another, honoring one another, sitting in one another's pain, not rushing away from it, dealing with the disgust of our past, but also dealing with the courage of our past, which can also make us courageous. And by all means, let us look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that tore the veil in two and made us one people, 
one people who are able one day to sit in his presence and worship him forever. I don't know about you, but I plan to be there. And I plan to look over the great sea of people of every tribe and tongue and with tears in my eyes thank him that we didn't quit, that we didn't give up, that we didn't punk out, but that we stayed here so that those that we see have a way forward too. So kingdom people, may God, who is the great reconciler, the way maker, the transformer of hearts, the one who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask or imagine, may he impress upon your heart your role in this work. And may he destroy the spirit of fear that would try to silence you and keep you from moving forward. And may we be his kingdom people to such a degree that the world wants to open their eyes and hearts and say how and why. And we draw them in by his love and his compassion. May that same king that saved you and me be the one that draws us deeper, takes us closer, and transforms us forever. And all God's people who agree would say, Amen. You're dismissed. Praise God.